0: Good morning all, it's November 20th and this is Coffee with Jim. It is a wonderful autumn day here in Bethesda, Maryland and also in Boston, Massachusetts. I say that because what a great privilege and honor it is to have with us today an incredibly accomplished, beloved, global cardiology leader, Dr. Melissa J. Wood, who is co-director and co-founder of the Corrigan Women's Heart Health Program at the Massachusetts General Hospital Heart Center and Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Melissa has over 33 years of clinical experience and incremental leadership in medicine. Her books include Smart at Heart and Thinfluence. Among the clinical trials that she has pioneered include The Happy Heart Study, previously, Dr. Wood served as the governor of the Massachusetts chapter of the ACC, American College of Cardiology. Most recently, Dr. Wood has been named the ACC's incoming chair of their board of governors. So Melissa, it's so great to have you here with us this morning. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me and I really look forward to our conversation this morning.
0: Me too. What I failed to mention that you have also done some clinical research with athletes in the past, including work with the U.S. Olympic Committee. Let's get into a couple of important questions. Melissa, 3,000 meters or 10,000 meters? 10K. 10K. (laughs) Are you a runner?
1: I am. Not a fast one, but I still get to the finish line.
0: Family members?
1: I have four children and they are all runners.
0: So marathon or triathlon? Both. Have you done both?
1: Yep. I've done, I guess now I've done, I've run five marathons and I've done quite a few triathons. However, I would say they were sort of clustered in my thirties. I haven't done a lot since I've been busy academically and my children have gotten older.
0: <laughs> wow. So how about most inspiring one or two leaders of all time for you? Either people you knew or didn't know, alive, not alive?
1: Oh, Abraham Lincoln and Nelson Mandela.
0: What comes to mind about leadership attributes from those
1: leaders? So fairness and ability to see beyond sort of the norms of their time and with a, with a vision towards the future that there could be a different way. Nice.
0: Any women leaders come to mind?
1: You know, Hillary Clinton was, uh, has been certainly an instrumental leader in sort of someone who's been able to forge a path. I identify greatly with her ability to establish herself front and center despite criticism and difficulty. You know, she's actually been able to overcome quite a lot of barriers in order to achieve success in her area of political leadership.
0: Yeah, great leaders all mentioned there. And we're going to get into a little bit of of your leadership, especially now, since as we know, the world has been spinning upside down, so to speak, in light of the pandemic, the, the political climate, the social unrest, the economic challenges. And so our theme for today is vision, looking back And looking forward, what if we start with Melissa? You've impacted thousands of early career physicians. You've been a mentor to so many physicians, clinicians, people. Frankly, as a sidebar, I know you're active in your church. You've been a mentor to so many, especially women, through your work nationally and internationally. What makes this so important to you? And why is this relevant today, November 2020?
1: Well, I would say that when I first started my career as a young physician in training, I looked around me to see, you know, were there people who looked like me that were doing what I wanted to do and what I wanted to aspire to be? Were they in that area? And there were very few women in cardiology that were able to sort of balance their life. There were a few women in cardiology. There weren't many. I realized that in order for us to change the numbers and to change the dynamic we needed to to have more women practicing cardiology and more women looking at the research questions that had sometimes been ignored you know i steadfastly pursued a career in cardiology despite people telling me it wasn't necessarily a great co- career for a young woman and i was so fortunate to be able to see individuals like pam douglas and others who really also had that vision and were able to to really bring me into the fold. There were also many male mentors and supporters, but I think it was a time when support for women entering cardiology was not as abundant as it is today. For that reason, I've really pushed hard to try to communicate at all levels of training, whether it's pre-medical, medical residency, fellowship, or junior trainees and junior faculty, to really show them some of the things that I've been able to do and share with them sort of my recipe for life balance, because I believe that ultimately that equipoise between personal and professional work is that which allows us to have sustainability in our career.
0: So many great points there, the equipoise, the life balance. I know that you've also been very mindful of burnout in colleagues, resilience, wellness, I know you've experienced a a little bit of all three of those. Do you want to comment on any of those?
1: Absolutely. I would say, and this is where I honestly and candidly talk to men and women and early stages of their career and really try to help them understand the idea of sequencing that, you know, you can have all, you can have a lot, but you can't necessarily have a lot at one time. I think that. I tried to sequence by sort of focusing on my family, working part-time early in my career. And then as my kids got older, sort of focusing more on clinical work and developing some you know research platform. But I think at some point along that journey, that equipoise or that balance kind of tipped. And I think about you know, sort of all of the different realms of one's life and how, if you kind of think about it, when you look at your computer's wellness, you know, where it talks about the utilization of memory within your computer and you see the different bars, I think our life is kind of like that. You know, we have our our family, our work, our creative time for ourselves and in our own health. I think for me, the work thing kind of superseded everything else at one point. And that was kind of a tipping point for me where my personal satisfaction and my ability to kind of take care of myself, you know, physically and mentally was sort of, it was tough. That was a challenge because I was overworked and really wasn't getting enough sleep or exercise, but I had the wherewithal to say, wait a second, things are out of sync here. So I reorganized, I kind of tried to create more space for myself and I really listened to what I tell my patients. I'm a firm believer in you know the oxygen mask phenomenon. If you don't take care of yourself, you cannot take care of everyone else. But I really needed to listen to my own lesson and I really needed to start practicing what I preach. And once I did that, I was able to get everything in balance. And I think I learned so much from that experience that I've been able to actually help my patients and my colleagues even more, because I feel like today I've been able to not only achieve balance, but more success in the areas that are important to me. And that's all of the domains that I I mentioned earlier.
0: Yes. There's a lot of wisdom there. And thanks for your candor there in noticing when the, the burnout was showing up in yourself. You told me once that way back, your dad said, the person who says it can't be done should not interrupt the person doing it. What makes that quote important to you?
1: Thank you for bringing that up. Um, My father was an incredible role model and mentor for me. His grit, personal grit and integrity and determination, I think were really exemplified by that quote that he shared with me at a very young age when I was quite young. I identify with that because I recognize that regardless of the pursuit, there will be people that will tell you it cannot be done. And that happens for many reasons. I mean, Marie Curie, Albert Einstein, you know, look across the board, you'll see many people who were consistently told that they were on the wrong path, that they didn't have what it took to achieve success, but they persisted. I think that quote kind of exemplifies that to me, that if you have your eye on a target that others may not think that it's achievable for you to reach that target, But as long as you do what you know needs to be done to get there, you will achieve success. Many people, I think, unfortunately, have inherent bias or implicit bias. Now, unfortunately, there's also a substantial amount of explicit bias that exists in our world today. But implicit bias colors the way that others look at us. They may say, this is a person that doesn't look like what I think is someone who achieves success in a particular domain. And that's okay, because sometimes when others criticize or tell you it can't be done, that motivates you even more. Long-winded answer to a short question, but I believe that if we carry within us the, the view, the vision, that, and we have the grit and determination that needs to be utilized to succeed, we will be able to achieve that success.
0: Yes, and that's part of our theme, looking back and looking ahead. And many people have called you a very selfless, very capable leader. Tell us a little bit about the importance of diversity in leadership. And there's another piece of that, which is racism in in public health and in health care today. Tell us more, Melissa.
1: I believe that when we look at the success of an organization or of an enterprise, it's very important to think about the components of that enterprise or organization, the the people who work together. And I think if we look at an organization or a group that has one type of individual, so you know, one sex or one race or you know, one um, person with a with a, with one type of success, you're really missing out on such a rich experience. The more diverse the leadership group, the more diverse the uh, individuals who work together, the better the overall outcomes will be. We know that representing different perspectives is really where the magic happens. You only will have different perspectives when you have individuals from different backgrounds. You know, an example is if you only have white males educated in an Ivy League institution, you are going to have an incredibly talented and incredibly capable group. However, we recognize that is necessary for certain things, but it is not sufficient for growth of an organization or sustainability. You need to have people from different areas, different backgrounds, different sexes, different races, to show and to bring to the table the wisdom of the experience they have had that has allowed them to move forward in their own lives. And I think we see that racism remains embedded in our culture. I'm so grateful and thankful to you for for asking me this question because I believe that no conversation, no transaction, um, no research, nothing should be done without us thinking about whether or not there is some embedded implicit bias or structural racism that's involved.
0: Yeah, so critical. I mean, I'm just proud to say that my county, I live in Bethesda, Maryland, Montgomery County has declared racism a, a public health crisis. Specifically, how does racism impact healthcare and what can physician leaders do about it?
1: So I think we know that it affects outcomes. We know that if we look at data across the board on utilization of therapies, diagnostic tools, et cetera, that there is uh, some disparity in the delivery of care. Some of that again is inherent, implicit, some of it is not. And I think that we must as physicians examine the way that we deliver care and look at the data to see whether or not there has been disparity and to address those disparities head on. One of the things that we have done at Mass General is with regard to education, both for education of our peers in our grand rounds and other types of education, as well as, and very importantly, the education of our trainees. Whenever there is a a lecture given, the person giving the lecture needs to think about, and we ask them to think about actively, not only what are the what is the take-home message that they want to deliver, but are there sex differences, are there racial differences within that body of understanding or within that area of work? And if there are, to discuss them and to under, try to understand them. And if there aren't, mention that as well. My hunch is that for the majority of things that we talk about clinically, whether it's in a grand round or as I did this morning in morning report with our incredibly talented fellows, there are sex, gender, racial, ethnic differences across the board and only when we look for them will we be able to successfully address them.
0: So important now, I guess again, you're hinting at our opportunities ahead Tell us a little more about these opportunities ahead, especially for you, Melissa. You've got some new leadership opportunities. Congratulations to you. So tell us about there's an opportunity in Danvers, Massachusetts. There is an opportunity with the ACC. Could you briefly explain each and then what is your vision for these roles?
1: Sure. So I think I'll start with the ACC. You know, I'm So honored and humbled to have been selected. I'm now the incoming chair elect and of the Board of Governors. And it's so exciting because you know the Board of Governors is the only elected group within the ACC and we have been as governors chosen by the members of our respective states to really represent their voice and to be their voice not only as governor of massachusetts but also in my my upcoming leadership role i really want to bring to the forefront and continue to support the work that's been done by the college the american college of cardiology thus far looking at the importance of improving diversity within cardiology i think that it's important that we do this both within our training programs there are a number of things that are being done now to identify why only 12 to 14% of currently practicing cardiologists are women. What are the reasons for that? And how can we address those problems? Certainly the diversity and inclusion task force has done an amazing job as incoming chair of the board of governors. I want to work with the governors to continue to make sure that what the diversity and inclusion group finds is, is actually translated into the state's level, the regional level, the local level, so that we can have an impact And it's really bi-directional. The work that's being done by the committees and the working groups of the college will feed backwards to to the states and the states will bring information that will allow new projects to be done. So certainly diversity and inclusion, a big thing for me. Also disparity in care. We know that right now, especially in the United States, there is this significant health concern in addition to COVID, which is certainly the biggest thing we're facing right now. But sort of secondarily to that, one of the things that really sets us apart from other developed countries is our extremely high maternal mortality rate. It's much higher than that of other developed countries. I think one of the concerns we have is that there is some disparity in care for young black women after they deliver children. And we know now by looking at the data that cardiovascular conditions are the the number one reason these women perish. And so we must develop ways of addressing the disparities in care that exist. Certainly by working with our state medical societies and within our local and state chapters of the ACC, we can again try to do a lot to really address this big health problem. And then finally, I want to represent the the voice of the governors and to hear from our members about how things like telemedicine have affected their ability to provide care during the pandemic by using my platform in leadership I want to be able to take that message to those who can actually affect change. You know, we really want to go to Washington, D.C. and advocate for our patients and our colleagues to make sure that telemedicine is not just a thing that we, we really use during the pandemic, but that it will extend beyond so that we can provide care to our patients who may find it challenging to come into the hospital. And there I can pivot to Danvers. So I have been asked to and have accepted the position of being the director of the Mass General's uh, Ambulatory Cardiology Clinic in Danvers, which is a, a suburb of Boston. You know, one of the really exciting things about this opportunity to me is to do work in the community. You know, we know that it's not really easy to get to Boston. In fact, the happy heart study that I did now, some, you know, 12 years ago was done in the community of Revere. And what I recognized was for people that live in a community like Revere, which is literally, I think, only like nine miles from from Boston, or maybe even less, (laughs) to get from Revere to downtown Boston is like flying over the Atlantic Ocean for many people because they want to stay in their community, they don't want to have to get on public transportation, or they find it you know, either physically challenging or financially challenging to get from point A to point B. They want care in their community. And we saw with the Happy Heart Study how robust we could actually change our patient's health by being embedded in their community. So when the position in Danvers opened up, I really was just gravitated towards it because I see the community is such a a teachable location. Not only do we have more space so that we can do group education and sort of try to develop and pilot novel ways of teaching our patients about cardiovascular disease prevention, but also cardiovascular disease management. Some of my colleagues in heart failure, arrhythmias, certainly my own group of patients, young women with myocardial infarction, these patients need support and we know that group support works. So being able to sort of develop models of doing that in the community with the hope that eventually we can can translate that into the mothership as well uh, will really is really one of my exciting goals. For me personally, I will tell you that one of the things that contributes to my contributed to my burnout was sitting in my car for a hundred plus minutes a day. So that was a hundred minutes a day. I wasn't helping my patients. I wasn't spending time with my family and I wasn't taking good care of myself. Now, I did get to listen to a lot of audible books, but I would say that that wasn't really productive time. Being in the community and now living close to where, where I'll be spending a fair bit of my time will allow me more space and more creativity to devote to the other things that I'm doing, including my ACC leadership role.
0: Well, first, I'll just say that these communities are so lucky to have you as a leader there helping with these outcomes that you've spoken about. Others have said about you, Melissa's strength is her vision, her ability to see things that others don't yet see. You touched on grit and how and why that's important to you. And what about this concept of ikigai? And help me pronounce it correctly and and tell us what that is and why it's relevant.
1: Last year, in 2019, a group of us were speaking at the ACC. It was really an exciting sort of um, breakout session, and it was on the topic of storytelling. You know, my topic was finding your passion. I was so excited to have that opportunity to really think about what had allowed me to affect some change in cardiology and to reach a lot of people professional, and, and personal goals. As I was reflecting upon that, and in my reading, I somehow stumbled upon this beautiful multicolored symbol and the four Japanese characters that are ikigai. Ikigai is the intersection of four spheres. Those spheres include the things that you're good at, so the, the talents that you bring to the table, the things that you love, the things that the world needs, and the things that you can earn a living doing and in the center of that, the overlap between those circles is ikigai. For me, I thought about how my entire career as a cardiologist, I was thinking about how can I take better care of my patients? How can I learn from my patients? Because they teach us every single day. And what is it that I can do that will allow others to take better care of patients? by recognizing or by you know developing our own sense of ikigai, we will have a better chance at succeeding at those things that are really important to us. And so for me, taking care of women and taking care of patients that have conditions that may not have been well recognized or understood was a personal goal. I also recognized that there were things that I could do and I could do pretty well there were things that I would actually get paid to do. And there were things that were needed because there was a huge area of, for example, heart disease in women and the nuanced sub areas within that, that were really poorly understood. And so if I could take all of the tools that I have built throughout my life and my career and use them to address an unmet need and still put food on the table for my family, that's that's a pretty good thing. And so I want to help others kind of understand that it's really important to pull these facets together.
0: Well, that's a, a great image. And you've touched on dissatisfiers and satisfiers for individuals and for physicians to help move more toward resilience and wellness and away from burnout. You've been very creative in the past. Out of curiosity, and we've touched up this topic, you know, the Daniel Goleman amygdala hijack, the emotional hijack. Alyssa, what gets you hijacked?
1: Oh, these days there's a lot, right? Um, So I think, you know, the thing that really gets me emotionally hijacked is when I feel that someone's being treated unfairly, whether that someone is an entire group of individuals, or it is one individual, or it is me. You know, I would seek to identify the source of that unfair treatment and really address it head on. But You know, I think what's been particularly troubling for me in the past few months is just seeing the the degree to which people are angry and fighting and calling names at one another in the political landscape. I believe now more than ever that we need unifiers, um, people who can understand both sides of an argument. And I think as a mother, I had to do a lot of collaborative problem solving with my children. I think that Everyone in a leadership role in Washington, D.C. should understand collaborative problem solving. I think we would get a lot more done in the House and the Senate if all of the elected officials understood the concept of collaborative problem solving. And that is that we can each walk away from something with a piece that we feel like we've achieved and our needs have been met. But that may mean that we have to give up something that we would not really love to give up, but it needs to be let go of so that. Ultimately, both sides can have their voice heard. I think we waste so much time with the negative talk. The more we work on this collaborative nature of achieving success or achieving a common goal, the better off we all will be.
0: Yeah, the collaboration, what a critical message uh, that is now. And we're, we're in our home stretch today. Just a couple of more questions. Dwell time came up in our conversations. Tell us about dwell time how did that sneak into our coaching dialogues
1: So that just sort of snuck up from the from the back of my brain everybody's brain works differently and one message I have for young young trainees and, and pretty much everyone is understand how your brain works you know I think a lot of time you know we have we have been taught you learn this way you think this way you work this way and ha- being the mother of, of someone with a different learning style has really allowed me to see that, that individual may think much more deeply than others, but figuring out how to get the message in there is is challenging. So a little bit about understanding your own thought process. As we move forward, taking what we have, have learned in our life and absorbing it and not trying to immediately act on it, that is dwell time. Dwell time, or that is that is why we need dwell time. Dwell time is Taking what you're learning, having all that information coming in, and then letting it just sit in your brain for a while. I learned with my learning style and my brain if I take in information and then I sleep, I exercise, I go about my life, in a way, almost subconsciously let that information kind of permeate, you know, really sink in. Then in a few weeks, or maybe sometimes in a few months, the message will really be clear to me and this is especially important with important decisions when ha- important decisions have to be made i think that a lot of times there's so much pressure to to make decisions very quickly you know you need to consider all of the information that is important in a topic let it sit there for a while and then make your decision. And I can't say enough about dwell time. And I want to express my gratitude to you for your coaching and allowing me to sort of ponder and think and consider before making decisions, because I think that is something that, that I've learned from your wisdom. And I really appreciate it greatly.
0: Well, you're very kind. I know you were already building in a lot of, we call it what we like, right? Meditation time, quiet time, reflective time, processing time in a day. As we wrap up today, our last question will be what makes an ideal leader today? You've touched on many leadership attributes. You've had many leadership experiences. You will have many more. In wrapping up, vision, looking back and looking ahead, what makes an ideal leader today in these times?
1: so well, i think now more than ever an ideal leader is someone who is willing to solve a problem to make a definite take a definitive stance when facing a problem but they need to take that definitive stance understanding the mindset of those that they are leading having a very organic understanding and comprehension of the people around them. The strengths, the weaknesses, the talents is so critical because an effective leader will share the opportunity to shine in the limelight with those around them and will lift them up and not seek to be on a pedestal by themselves. That upward mobility of the group is really what allows everyone to be their best version of themselves. And having a leader at the top that says we are going to do this together and steadfastly continues to behave in a way that demonstrates that they are listening to all of their the members of their team and working towards a common goal together i think is really is really key
0: well great leadership lessons there for all of us i want to say thank you so much melissa i wish you continued success in all of the roles in danvers At the ACC, wishing you and your family continued health, of course, during this pandemic, during the Thanksgiving holiday that's coming up. So thank you so much.
1: Same to you, please have a nice holiday. Thank you again.